Hello and welcome to episode 85 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. Today's story comes from Cambridge and involves people living in the real underbelly of the city. The part you don't see when punting down the river or visiting the magnificent buildings of the university. This episode is all about casual group sex, devil worship, drugs and murder. But before we begin, let me start by thanking my supporters on Patreon, especially this week's new supporters, Suzanne Decasse, Kate Beiser, Jackie Rowan and Emma Jones. Thank you so much for your support, which is much appreciated. I really hope you enjoy the 16 full-length bonus episodes and other exclusive content. And why wouldn't you? With only another 327 true crime podcasts available on Apple Podcasts, and with only 80% of television channels showing wall-to-wall true crime, this sort of content isn't easily available, is it? So let's set some context for the events of today's story, which took place from August 1999. Top of the charts at that time was Jerry Halliwell with, well, you know, actually, what does it matter? It was an utter pile of garbage, obviously. In the US, it was Christina Aguilera topping the charts with Genie in a Bottle. And top of the album charts in Australia was Shania Twain with Come On Over. In the news this month, Charles Kennedy won the race to succeed Paddy Pantsdown Ashdown as the leader of the Liberal Democrats. Those were the days when people were a tiny bit interested in that party. I know, it seems a long time ago, doesn't it? The 7th World Athletics Championships opened in beautiful Seville in Spain, where the awesome Michael Johnson broke the 400m world record with a time of 43.18 seconds. In UK true crime news, 54-year-old Norfolk farmer Tony Martin, remember him? This was when he was charged with the murder of a 16-year-old burglar who was shot dead at his home. He was also charged with wounding a 29-year-old man who was also present at the time of the burglary. I bet you remember that case, right? Very similar to the one recently where the man was killed during the burglary. To me, it's really simple that you can defend your property and should face no charges if the low life that's trying to rob you dies. But no doubt there are those among you who feel there should be something around reasonable force and so on. Maybe I'll start a thread on the Facebook group and we can discuss this in more detail. Today's story, as I said, comes from Cambridge a city around 50 miles north of London, known for its university. And I don't mean the Anglo-Ruskin university campus in the city. To give you an idea of the importance of students to the economy of Cambridge, in 2011, of a population of almost 124,000, around 25,000 of those were students. I've spent a fair amount of time there, it's not too far away from me, and a couple of hours punting on the cam is a lot of fun, if you're not offended by privilege. But do avoid the car parks. It's probably cheaper to park in Monaco. One of my favourite bands of all time, Pink Floyd, originate from Cambridge, with Genius, the late Sid Barrett, Roger Waters and David Gilmore all growing up there. Matthew Bellamy, from one of my other top bands, Muse, was also born in Cambridge. But like any big city, once you go behind the tourist areas, the city has its share of problems. And back in 99, the city had a big heroin problem. Police estimated that burglaries by addicts trying to pay for their habit cost up to a million pounds a year. The local health authorities were handing out a lot of methadone 
to try to wean addicts from their habit. Now look, I'm no expert in the field of addiction, but methadone can be dangerous on its own. Some individuals supplement their prescribed medication with methadone procured from other sources. There's also the risk of psychological dependence, which greatly contributes to abuse. It can also be deadly on its own, and methadone deaths are often related to taking methadone with other drugs such as alcohol. It's also difficult to regulate the amount of methadone needed as users naturally build up resistance to the drug. In today's story, Kathleen McCluskey faced a jury at Norwich Crown Court accused of killing four men and injuring two others by administering lethal doses of methadone to them. Kathleen McCluskey denied four charges of murder and four alternative charges of manslaughter. She also pled not guilty to a charge of causing a noxious thing to be administered or taken so as to endanger life and an alternative of causing a noxious thing to be administered to injure, aggrieve or annoy. To understand how Kathleen McCluskey ended up in Norwich Crown Court facing such serious charges, we need to go back to her earlier life. Catherine McCluskey was born Kathleen Baxter in South Yorkshire in 1960. She grew up in Bradford and in 1976 she left home at 16 and moved to Brighton where she lived there and also in London before eventually turning up in Cambridge in the 80s. It's thought that during this period she worked as a sex worker as well as developing an interest in witchcraft and the occult and she also developed a heroin drug habit. In December 1994 she married old Etonian James Warmold. They were quite an unusual couple a working-class northern woman with a background in the sex industry, and the upper-class James Warmold, who came from a wealthy family and had been a head boy at the most privileged of private schools, Eton. James took her surname Baxter as his married name, and theirs was an open marriage. They lived a very liberal life and they attended sex and drugs parties in Cambridge, often together. Visitors to their flat would comment how Kathleen would usually answer the door of their flat in a leather basque, or naked. But in the circles in which they moved, this was absolutely expected. When clothed, Kathleen always wore black, and when friends came over, she encouraged them to stroke a devil statue which she kept in her home. Due to this, and the fact that she described herself as a witch, as she faced court, she was described in the tabloid press as a devil worshipper. I know, standard stuff for the tabloids, right? And the way she lived her life, it's the sort of behaviour sneered at by the classic Daily Mail readers. But as a theme we constantly return to on this podcast, many of those close to you live a secret life that they conceal for many reasons, usually due to fear in the reactions of others. I like the way that Kathleen and James couldn't care less what anyone else thought about their lifestyle. They lived their life just how they wanted to. Back to the trial. The jury were told that Kathleen McCluskey was a drug addict and was prescribed methadone by a government addiction programme. She was well versed in the dangers of overdose and dangerous drug combinations. In her Cambridge home, police had found a copy of the British National Formulary, the Pharmacist Bible, which gives details of prescribed drugs and their effects. The crux of the prosecution case against her as she looked at these charges was that she had murdered and attempted to murder four people through administering methadone to them. 
In October 2001, the police launched Operation Falstaff. When the name Kathleen McCluskey kept cropping up in connection with drug deaths in Cambridge, police decided that she was either a very unlucky lady or a very evil one. Having one man die of an overdose in front of you is a tragedy. Two could be a coincidence, but three or four? So the operation was launched in September 2001 because of Kathleen's proximity to the deaths of four men who all died of drugs overdoses. Detective Chief Inspector Paul Craig, who was leading the operation, decided to arrest Kathleen and charged her with administering a noxious substance to another man, Charles Horsepool, who had survived the overdose in June 2001. Kathleen was with him at the time and he had fallen ill after taking a vodka and herb concoction made up by her, with whom he was having a sexual relationship. The fact that this case even got to court surprised many at Cambridge Police because of the difficulty of proving Kathleen's intent to kill. There was no apparent motive for her to kill any of these men and nothing financial or, well, no other reason at all as far as they could see. The first victim allegedly killed by Kathleen McCluskey was Mohammed Shoja Asidi, age 48, known as Martin to his friends. He was an artist who lived alone, a heavy drinker, who was prescribed low-level doses of methadone several years earlier. Shortly before Muhammad's death, Kathleen was prescribed just over a litre of double-strength methadone, that was 14 days worth for her, and her husband, James Baxter, was prescribed a similar amount. Kathleen began a relationship with Muhammad after meeting him for a local drugs and alcohol service. Visitors to her flat said how the walls of the flat were covered with pictures of the pair having sex. The weekend of his death in August 1999 began with a sex and drugs party involving Kathleen, her husband James and Muhammad. James eventually left but his wife remained and in the early hours of the following day she rang an ambulance and the paramedics arrived to pronounce Muhammad dead at the flat. When they arrived they found him slumped on a settee Although Kathleen and James were initially arrested on suspicion of supplying drugs, they faced no charges, and in March 2000, a coroner recorded an open verdict on Muhammad. Later, when arrested and questioned by police, Kathleen told how the charismatic Muhammad had bewitched her, but she said that due to the drugs that she was taking, she couldn't remember much about the night Muhammad died at his flat. She said that her husband, James, had told her that half her methadone had gone and that Muhammad was dying. She said that to the best of her recollection, she thought she phoned an ambulance after she'd heard the death rattle. Kathleen told detectives that she would never purposely have caused harm to Muhammad, of whom she was incredibly fond, saying, I loved him like a baby, you understand. Catherine's second alleged murder victim was care assistant Marvin Brodie, aged 32, a man who was well-liked with lots of friends, but he had a pretty serious drink problem. She got to know him through a friend, and in June 2000, went out with him and some other friends to see a film. During the evening, she was heard to say, I don't want to go to prison. I'll kill you like I killed the rest. They went on to a party where Kathleen asked party guests if she and her new lover, Marvin, could have sex on the table, 
while the six other people in the room watched. She then fetched a bread knife to undress someone in the room. The following morning after the party, Kathleen and Marvin took a taxi back to Kathleen's flat so they could get some methadone. Soon after, a witness heard a woman's voice saying, I can't wake him. Six hours later, an ambulance was called and Marvin Brody was found dead at the flat. Marvin was lying on the floor, clutching an empty methadone bottle. When questioned by police, Kathleen told officers that his death was nothing to do with her or her husband, James. A post-mortem examination found a combination of methadone and alcohol had led directly to his death. And again, an open verdict was recorded at the inquest. At Marvin's flat, police found a notepad. On one page was written, My name is Kathleen. In the same writing on another page were the words, Methadone, Ambulance, Adultery. QC Godsmark said that the prosecution case was that the methadone which killed Marvin Brody came from Kathleen. He said, She must have given it to him, and it killed him. At the start of 2001, Kathleen's husband, James Baxter, died, taking his own life. He committed suicide using a vacuum cleaner pipe attached to his car's exhaust pipe. Was this due to guilt caused to his potential involvement in the methadone deaths? Prosecutors working on the case later doubted that the suicide ruling at the inquest was right and questioned whether or not Kathleen was involved. Kathleen didn't appear to grieve for long. Months after James had died, she married her second husband, 44-year-old James McCluskey. The third man that prosecutors allege was killed by Kathleen was Raymond Diaz, a friend of Catherine's second husband, James McCluskey, and he lived only a few doors away from them, in Grey Road, Cambridge. On the day he died, March 29th, 2001, Diaz had been drinking heavily in the company of James McCluskey's ex-partner Jenny Norris, and at some point in the day had bought heroin. The court heard how Diaz called a friend that afternoon to say he had tried smoking the heroin without success and was going to James McCluskey's to get some works. A needle, that is, and a syringe. James McCluskey injected methadone on prescription and he'd arrange his syringes. The same night, another friend got a call from James McCluskey to say that Raymond Diaz was dead. Catherine had called an ambulance at 7.25pm saying that Raymond had collapsed on arrival at her flat and that her husband James was trying to assassinate him. When spoken to by police, the couple disagreed about the time that Raymond had arrived, but Kathleen told officers she had called 999 almost straight away. But a paramedic, James Wenham, told the court that he had arrived within minutes of the call to find no signs of life. Raymond was blue, and when hooked up to a defibrillator, he showed no heart activity at all, suggesting he'd been dead longer than the five minutes that Kathleen claimed had passed. A PC who attended the scene admitted she found no signs of drug-taking at Kathleen's or Raymond's flat. A post-mortem examination found he had died of alcohol and heroin intoxication. There were no charges. The final victim allegedly killed at the hands of Kathleen was her second husband, on the 25th of September 2001, Kathleen dialed 999, 
telling the operator that her husband had suffered a fit. He later died of methadone and alcohol poisoning. As news of the investigation into Kathleen spread, another man came forward to tell police about his experience with her. The jury at Norwich Crown Court heard that 38-year-old Peter Bakalinski was described as the one who got away. Another methadone user, he'd been friends with Kathleen's first husband, James Baxter, and had begun growing cannabis with him in the couple's flat in Cambridge. He claimed he was knocked unconscious for five hours by a tumbler full of blue liquid they gave him as a Christmas present on Christmas Day 1999. In the months before that, he said that Kathleen had constantly pestered him for sex, appearing in revealing leather garments and saying, you know how much I want to sleep with you. On Christmas Day, he claimed that she asked James to fetch a drink from the kitchen and he did so reluctantly. Believing it to be methadone, he drank it, but he then lost consciousness immediately. He said, it tasted bitter and very strong. When I came round, I was so cold. I didn't know where or even who I was. When he did eventually come to, he saw Kathleen enjoying sex games with her husband. He stopped seeing the Baxters shortly afterwards, only for Kathleen to call his elderly parents, sexually propositioning his dad and telling his mother that he injected drugs. As the trial came to a close, summing up, prosecutors described Kathleen McCluskey as bearing an ambivalent attitude towards men. Prosecutor Godsmark said, Four deaths is just too many to be a coincidence. The common factor is this lady. He added, In each case the defendant supplied the drugs or supplied the means of taking these drugs. She was there when the drugs were taken. She was there when the men died on each of the four occasions. In each case, it's possible the four men took the drugs willingly. It's not a case of covert injection. This is the rather murky world of drug addiction. After hearing all the evidence, the judge instructed the jury to bring in not guilty verdicts on the charge of murdering her husband James McCluskey and his friend Raymond Diaz due to a lack of evidence presented by the prosecution. She was also cleared of two alternative charges of manslaughter. But on December the 16th, 2002, Kathleen McCluskey was convicted at Norwich Crown Court of two of the four murders she was charged with on the reduced charge of manslaughter. On hearing the verdict, Kathleen threw into a rage, shouting, This is total ignorance! When female guards were called to escort the convict to her cell, she was twice heard screaming, Ignorant bitches! at the guards. The next year, on the 19th of March 2003, Kathleen McCluskey was sentenced to 10 years in prison for two manslaughter convictions. Four years for killing Mohamed Asadi, plus six years for killing Marvin Brody. During the sentencing, the judge admonished the murderess, saying, You have had a sad life. I bear in mind the effect that drugs have had on you. Nevertheless, although you have a borderline personality disorder, I have to take into account you have shown little compassion or remorse for the deaths of these two men. Speaking outside court, Detective Chief Inspector Paul Craig, who led Operation Falstaff, which investigated Kathleen McCluskey, 
said he was very pleased she'd been jailed for 10 years. He said of the victim's relatives, although today's sentence will not bring their loved ones back, they may now take some small comfort from the knowledge that Kathleen McCluskey will spend many years in prison. This was a complicated case and a very unusual one. The common thread was that she was present at all four deaths. That seemed to be too much of a coincidence. We found no evidence of any obvious motive. It was a case in which we and the lawyers felt that a jury had to decide and I respect the decision they've come to. I would like to thank all of those who gave assistance to the investigation, including the families, friends, members of the public who came forward with information and of course my colleagues. So what do you make of what we've heard today? I think it's a really interesting and unusual case and one that has proved difficult to research as there isn't as much information as I'd have liked to find. But I think it's clear that as the prosecutor said in court, this is a really difficult case due to the murky world inhabited by the main players. It isn't as black and white as we tend to like and nobody is suggesting that she forced the men to take the methadone. And one part that particularly intrigues me is her first husband, James Baxter, who killed himself, probably, aged just 50 in 2001. Was he too involved in the previous deaths? Was it something the couple did for sexual kicks? Or was it just accidental? In her Cambridge home, police found a copy of the British National Formulary, the pharmacist's bible, as I said earlier, and this gives exact details of prescribed drugs and their effects, so she should have known the doses that could be prescribed. But I also imagine that after taking a number of substances herself, she may not always have been thinking with the greatest clarity. Or maybe like many addicts, whatever the addiction, she and they were just pushing the boundaries. Kathleen McCluskey is now out of prison. I wonder what she's doing. Is she still living a hedonistic lifestyle or has the time to reflect in prison as well as her increased age and kicking drugs, presumably? Has this changed her mind on how she now lives her life? I wonder if she looks back with regret on the four lives lost. Four innocent men, all vulnerable due to their involvement in the world of hard drugs and like all of us, just trying to get as much as they could from their time on this planet. I think that none of us was far as we think from making the wrong choice, just the once that will end our lives. We hear about it a lot on this podcast. And to them, the poor four innocent victims, spending time with Kathleen should have been a recipe for pleasure, not death. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I really appreciate it. Please come and talk about this episode or any other aspect of UK True Crime at our Facebook group. There's almost 1,300 members and there's always lots to talk about. And to support the show and enable me to keep producing it weekly and buying better research, please head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. You can listen to 16 full-length bonus episodes and other exclusive content. Go on, you know you want to. So that is all from me for now. I'm in need of an intellectual hit, so it's time to catch up with last night's Love Island. So until we speak again, be kind to everyone, 
you really don't understand the battles they are currently facing. And most of all, stay classy. Cheerio.